The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Manny Teodoro. He is the lead author of the book that we'll be discussing today titled The Prophets of Distrust, Citizen Consumers, Drinking Water, and the Crisis of Confidence in American Government. Dr. Teodoro is an associate professor at the Robert M. La Follette School of Public Affairs at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He works at the intersection of politics, policy, and management with a focus on water in the United States. His research involves utility governance, regulation, and environmental justice. Dr. Teodoro has advised water sector leaders for more than 25 years. It is so great to have you with me today. Welcome. Thanks so much, Melinda. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, I watched a presentation that you gave at a water conference, and I dove into this book because water is our most important nutrient. And I think that it would be fair to say that we pretty much take water that comes from our tap for granted until something happens, as we saw, for example, in Flint, Michigan. Then suddenly we need to fix it. Why did you focus on water with your work in policy? Yeah, taken for granted, certainly uh, until something goes wrong. That's a good way to put it. Why did I take up water? Well, I'm a social scientist. I'm actually a political scientist by training. And so what drove me to the subject of water as much as anything is just how fundamental it is. The core of democratic theory, the whole rationale behind the Republican form of government, is that governments get their legitimacy and maintain their legitimacy by providing for people's basic needs. They lose their legitimacy by failing to take care of people's basic needs. And you do not get more basic than water. That is literally essential. And as as you put it, it's just so important to us. It's the foundation of everything we are literally as humans. And so, of course, if you're interested in questions about governance and the public and citizen behavior, you know, water is foundational. Yeah. I want to pull a couple of quotes out of this book because I think this really hits home. The first is on the chapter of basic services and rebuilding legitimacy, the water trust cycle. And you have a quote from Barack Obama, and he says, if the people cannot trust their government to do the job for which it exists, to protect them and to promote their common welfare, all else is lost. And I think that you brilliantly focus on water because it is so central to our health, to our well-being, you know, other than clean air and pure food. I think it was Gerald Ford. You have a quote from him in here as well to that effect. So let's talk about what you witnessed and how you got started writing this book. You started noticing that there were water kiosks or bottled water centers in communities for sale. Tell me how this all evolved. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, the genesis of this project was not to write a book about trust in government and basic services. This started as sort of a curiosity. When I moved to Texas, I, I live in Wisconsin now, but I, I lived in Texas at the time we started this project. And I'm not from Texas, but I moved there in 2013. And I saw these water kiosks around and these, these sort of bottled water sales centers. I saw how popular bottled water was. And that, that struck me as kind of odd. And then I went to a lecture on campus with a geographer named Wendy Jepson, who does terrific work. And, and she gave a talk about water kiosks, those freestanding vending machines, and their emergence and prevalence in the South Rio Grande Valley. She talked about how popular these water kiosks were in the developing world and how now they were in the United States in communities where tap water was failing or tap water access was poor. And that sort of made sense to me. But what didn't make sense to me was that I saw those kiosks all over Houston and all over Austin and all over Dallas and in places like Denver and Phoenix. These are modern American cities that have modern, professionally run drinking water utilities, and yet these kiosks were all over the cities. So I had a graduate student at that time named Samantha Zulke, who had some geographic analytical acumen, and so I said, hey, Sam, let's look into these things and, and see what we can learn. And we thought we'd maybe find something about affordability or, or, or access, but we very quickly found was that these kiosks were showing up in low-income, largely Hispanic, and otherwise non-white neighborhoods. And the further we peeled back the onion, the more we began to discover that people's drinking water choices were not really about access, and they certainly weren't about affordability. Those choices were about identity and about their belief and about their trust in institutions. And about the same time, our other co-author, David Switzer, was doing some work on bottled water behavior and bottled water consumption and public attitudes, and he was finding very similar things, and that got us to connect the dots, as you put it, between this consumer behavior on one hand and citizen political attitudes and behavior on the other. And you use a term that I've not seen before, and I love it. It's citizen-consumer. I think more of us should speak about ourselves that way. Yeah, you know, we didn't invent that term, but it certainly, I think, captures something important. You know, we typically think of our economic behavior as consumers as somehow disconnected to our political behavior as citizens. But what we really found in developing this book is that the two of them are sort of intimately linked, that the way that we behave as consumers relates to our behavior as citizens. Right. And it's also a friendly reminder that we have a role here living in a democracy, and that is to be a citizen and not just a blind consumer. And I think with bottled water, the marketing of bottled water, of course, is brilliant, but it's sold as a luxury product. And certainly in communities where there have been water problems, then bottled water becomes essential. And you've seen lines of people not only in Flint, Michigan, but wherever there's a disaster, and they are increasing because of climate change incidences, we see people being more dependent on bottled water. But the marketing is such that bottled water is a luxury and people want that. Well, it's funny because I think historically we've thought of bottled water as a luxury because it is vastly more expensive on a unit cost basis compared to tap water. But what's odd is unlike most luxury products, say like a Mercedes-Benz or a Cadillac or a Rolex watch or something like that, we actually see more bottled water consumption among people with low incomes. 
tap water consumption is correlated with income in this country. So the more money you have, the more likely you are to drink tap water. The less money you have, the more likely you are to drink bottled water. It's exactly opposite of what we would think of with a typical luxury good. So it's a luxury good in the way that you described it. I'd agree entirely. But behaviorally, it's low-income consumers, and particularly non-white consumers, who, who tend to buy bottled water. And the irony is, in a lot of cases, these are folks who have the fewest resources and yet are spending the most, even in communities that have high-quality tap water. And that's the real puzzle. It is. And you report that Americans spend more than $36 billion per year on commercial drinking water, and that would be essentially bottled water. I am concerned about bottled water because I think there's this perception that it is high quality. Oftentimes, as you say, it comes just from another tap. But also the plastic bottle issue is a concern. And we're learning more about microplastics from these bottles getting into our bodies. And of course, just the ubiquitous nature of plastic waste. So switching people over or back to the tap is an important strategy for us to focus on and how we do that. But this idea that low-income populations who can least afford the bottled water are more likely to buy it, is that reason because of distrust of government? That's our main hypothesis in this book, is it's distrust of government that's driving that behavior. And look, I'm sure I don't need to tell you or anybody listening to this program that there are good reasons for low-income and particularly non-white populations to distrust the institutions of government. There are some unpleasant and ugly legacies that we're still living with today. And so it shouldn't surprise us that folks who distrust government and other dimensions of their life are going to distrust government's regulation and production of drinking water. Right. I want to go back to something you said, though, about higher income populations relying on the tap. And I know that this isn't reported in the book. It's just something to throw out there. And that has to do with higher income populations may be drinking water from the tap, but I wonder how many of those populations filter their water. Yeah, it's a great question, and it's not something we took up in the book, but it is something that David Switzer and I are taking up in other research where we are looking at, within the population who drink tap water, how many folks are drinking it plain, straight out of the tap, and how many folks are using filtration of one kind or another. We don't have a lot of good answers on that yet. Historically, the research has told us that people use filters mainly for aesthetic reasons, taste, smell, appearance, that they're not using filters because of a safety concern, but rather because they like the, the taste of a filtered water, especially if they're using it for cooking or for making coffee or tea. But I think there are reasons to believe that people are beginning to use filtration maybe more out of a concern for safety. And we just don't have a good handle on that as a research community right now. Yeah. And I know that in interviews in the past, I have discussed the issue of water quality, whether we're talking about PFAS or concerns about lead or arsenic, and then also the report from the president's cancer panel on reducing environmental cancer risk, there was also a recommendation to filter water. So this is a big, complex issue, but I want to get back to profits of distrust, because this book hits on some points that I don't think we think about often enough. And one of them has to do with history. 
And it used to be where water infrastructure was seen as civic architecture, and we were proud of it, and it took central stage. We don't do that anymore. No, we don't. And it's a strange puzzle to me. It is puzzling because from the rise of civilization, politicians, whether they were kings or pharaohs or emperors, love to put water infrastructure on public display because it is such a powerful symbol of the benevolence and beneficence of the state, right? Here's an aqueduct that brought you fresh water to you, the citizen of this state. And we certainly did that in the United States as well. In the great era of civic architecture in the water sector, you could think of sort of the very late 19th and maybe the first quarter of the 20th century. If you look at cities all over the United States, it's just magnificent water towers and reservoirs and treatment plants that are beautiful as well as functional. And we did get away from that in the middle to the latter part of the 20th century. And I couldn't really tell you why. But it does seem to me a loss because it, it has made these systems literally invisible. Right. They're buried. Those systems that we rely on every single day are out of sight and therefore out of mind until, as you mentioned earlier, something goes disastrously wrong. When there's a main break on your street, then you could lose water pressure, and there's a boil water notice, and there's water flooding down Main Street. Now we all know about it. Exactly. Let me take one break because we're halfway through, and I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Manny Teodoro, Associate Professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and his book, where he is the lead author, is titled The Profits of Distrust, Citizen Consumers, Drinking Water, and the Crisis of Confidence in American Government. I think you would agree that we are in troubled times with regard to climate change and the things that we see going on related to that with regard to water quality and disasters. But we also have this tremendous distrust of government. And I think it's important, especially with your expertise in policy and rebuilding trust, can we talk about how we might come together as a United States of America and have trust in our government again? Yeah, you know, one of the themes that really came out of this book as we were developing it, too, is that trust in these institutions is so central to trying to get government to do anything. One of the things that makes water such a great subject of study, but also a great way to build confidence in government, is that water problems are complicated, but they're solvable especially when you compare to something like climate change or you know, international security and, and counterterrorism and, and some of the other really, really thorny problems, we know where water pollution comes from. We have some brilliant scientists and engineers who know how to treat our water. We know how to deliver water to people. So we think basic services like water and getting those things right is essential to building the kind of trust that we need if we want our institutions to tackle the much more difficult global problems. You know, there's been some recent research on support for climate policy that I find fascinating that shows that people's support for climate policy in large part depends on how much they trust government. Wow. And that sort of makes sense because climate policy, unlike a lot of things, is not something that's going to make a difference in my life right now. Even if we think, you know, even if I believe that the heat wave or the drought or the storm is caused by global climate change. Maybe I believe that. There's no question there. But before I'm going to support a government effort to address that problem, I have to believe that the government is capable of addressing it effectively because 
even if government does everything right, we're not going to solve that problem tomorrow. It's going to be years. It's going to be decades. It's going to be generations. So I have to believe that government as an institution is functional enough, competent enough, trustworthy enough, that I can support a decision that could be costly, that is going to have a payoff, maybe that I won't ever even see. Maybe my children or my grandchildren will get that payoff. That only makes sense if I believe in the institution. Right. Well, you know, we often hear that people on fixed incomes, low-income individuals, they don't want to see their water rates go up. And that's one of the arguments about investing more in our critical water infrastructure. So how do we help people understand the value of this infrastructure? How do we move the dial so that more people support whatever it takes to improve the water that comes from the tap? Well, I I think there's two ways to address that. Uh, One is to understand that when we think about affordability, we have to look at the whole suite of expenditures on water. So if a low-income household struggling to pay its water bill, we also have to ask how much are they spending for bottled water? And if an improvement in the water infrastructure will allow that same low-income household to now believe in and trust in the quality of their tap water, well, now they're going to avoid spending 100 or $200 a month on bottled water, and they're going to come out ahead financially. So I think that's part of it. But I think the bigger question and the deeper question, I think the one that, that you're really getting after here, has to do with quality and trust. People need to believe that the product that's coming from their tap is excellent, and not just because they've been sold a bill of goods in some sort of a marketing sense, right? I'm not talking about purely a public communication problem, although utilities also have a public communication problem. But we also have a quality problem. And unless and until tap water is excellence everywhere for everyone, there will be people who have good reasons to distrust their tap water. And one of the fascinating findings that came out of this research in this book is that on average, people who drink tap water are more supportive of investments in public infrastructure. People who drink bottled water are less supportive of investments in public infrastructure. And we think that's important, right? If, if you think about it, if, if you're unhappy with your tap water, you could react in one of two ways. You could say, look, I'm willing to pay more if you guys fix this problem. And then you'd have a higher bill, but you'd have a better product. The other way you can look at it is, heck no, I'm not going to pay more because I don't trust you to have the competence or the moral fortitude to do a good job providing me good service. So I'm not going to support more public spending. And in fact, that is what we find. We find that folks who don't trust the system are not willing to spend more on the system. That's such a shame, because there's so much at stake. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's it's literally life or death. It really is. Yeah. You know, something else that surprised me, you report that more than 1.1 million people do not even have in-home piped water. Yeah. That's astonishing, isn't it? It really is. And yet you say that providing in-home piped water is a pipe dream. Well, it's hard to say exactly because we don't have a good handle on exactly who these folks are. Those numbers come from the American Housing Survey, so they're extrapolated from a sample. If anything, it's probably undercounted. 
You know, 1.1 million sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. In percentage terms, it's very small, where our national population is over 310 million. Right. 0.1 is a small in percentage terms. But it's a million people. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. A lot of people in absolute terms. You know, it's hard to know what it would cost to serve all of these folks, but some of the other interesting research that's come out lately is a surprising number of these people are not necessarily out in the middle of nowhere. They are, in some cases, in the middle of cities, or they're in areas that have utility service and just for one reason or another are not connected to that service. And that gets me to the part of your book that I really want to focus on, which is the plan that you have proposed for a better water for a more perfect union. And you go through some recommendations, and one that stuck out to me, because I had no idea this was the case, it had to do with the number of drinking water utilities in the United States and the problem that arises because there are so many, and you recommend consolidation. That's right. It's almost unbelievable. For people who have never spent a moment thinking about water utilities, there are 50,000 community water systems in the United States. Now, that doesn't mean 50,000 separate organizations. It's probably something like 40 or 45,000 different organizations. But we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of organizations, most of which are very small. And while places like Flint or Baltimore or Detroit get a lot of public attention, the worst water systems in the country are really small systems, particularly in rural areas that serve poor, non-white populations, and then especially on tribal lands. They're some of the worst drinking water systems in the country. What we talk about here is consolidation because it's hard to overstate how many problems are associated with just having such small systems. A lot of these places are serving 500, 1,000, maybe a couple of thousand people. They might have one or two employees. It's difficult to deploy the latest treatment technology when you've only got two employees in a pickup truck trying to keep a system running. So, yeah, A number one on our list of recommendations for the water sector is to consolidate. However, you also bring up the barriers that are identified whenever this is suggested, one big one being that people are going to lose their jobs. It is. The job loss, on one hand, there would be some people who would lose their jobs, but on the other hand, we've got a labor shortage in the water sector. And uh, I think consolidation is part of the way to get to solve that labor shortage. You know, if you're a young, talented, and ambitious water operator, professional, want to work in this field, why on earth would you want to work for a little tiny system that has three employees? There's no growth there. Salary and benefits probably aren't very good. You're going to be much more attracted to a large organization that has better colleagues, better growth opportunities, better technology. You know, you're going to want to play in those bigger leagues. And, uh, you know, what happens, unfortunately, with a lot of smaller systems is their best employees leave. Well, I'd love to go through a few more of these recommendations in your plan, because I think they're all important. We won't have time to get to all of them, but there were some that jumped out at me. The other, of course, is infrastructure investment. And what I think that we struggle with is this reluctance to want to pay more for the infrastructure. But there's also a large contingent of our population that says we want less government. You know, we want smaller government. And yet, it's our government that is serving to protect our most vital resources. 
So how do you navigate that in a communication strategy perspective? I think the answer is probably going to be different messages in different places. Right. This is a big, diverse country. And the right way to communicate about this stuff might be different in one place from another. And you know, I wish that water wasn't partisan, but when you start talking about government, partisanship seems to creep into everything we do these days. Yeah. So it could be the case that we need to approach these questions differently in, say, red states versus blue states or red counties versus blue counties. And maybe our rhetoric needs to change. Maybe our policy approaches need to change. I'm not an especially ideological guy. I'm interested in what works. And if we need to use different rhetoric, use different policy instruments in some parts of the country because different approaches are more or less politically palatable, in my view, that's what we ought to do. Well, maybe we can all come together around safe drinking water. That would be a nice unifying force. I want to bring forth something that you wrote here. America's drinking water utilities face perhaps a trillion dollars in replacement and upgrade costs over the next 25 years. And that was according to the American Water Works Association. They said that in 2017. Yeah. But I think it's important to frame that big number that nobody really is able to get their head around to frame that in terms of what are the costs of not having high-quality water and solid infrastructure, like we saw in Flint. I mean, those damaged children from lead poisoning, that will carry them and their families for generations. Sure. You know, it's funny. I I remember giving testimony before a state legislative hearing a few years ago. And this was a hearing about lead service line replacement back when that was the hottest issue in, in some ways in the country. And a member of the legislature asked me about the cost of replacing these things. And I looked at him and I said, yeah, it's expensive to replace lead service lines. But what on earth is more important? We're talking about lead, a poisonous substance that is going into our children's bodies. If we're not going to spend money on that, what are we going to spend money on? What is the social good that is more important than removing poison from our bodies? And I I think that that's a way to think about these numbers. Yeah, they're big. They're eye-popping. But, you know, when you step back and look at the big picture, what is it that we're going to spend on that's more important than safe drinking water? Exactly. You know, you've got so many good suggestions for improvement of our water infrastructure. And you talk about tap water equity, which I think is critically important, active outreach, education. Unfortunately, we're out of time. And I want to ask you to leave us with a message that you want our listeners to take away. Water is the most intimate relationship between people and their government. It's a life-sustaining product. Governments regulate, they produce, and they send directly into our homes. We cook with it. We immerse our children in it. We take it into our bodies. There's nothing that government does that's more important. And so if we want that product to be great, We need to engage with the government, but just as importantly, if the leaders of this country truly want to govern, they need to take the basics seriously and engage with, take seriously with, and be good stewards of these water systems, because that is where trust is won and where trust is lost. Well, I highly recommend reading this book, recommending it to book clubs and libraries, is worthy of further discussion and policy action. The title of the book is The Profits of Distrust, 
Citizen Consumers, Drinking Water, and the Crisis of Confidence in American Government. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank Dr. Manny Teodoro, an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He works at the intersection of politics, policy, and management with a focus on water. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been a delight.